following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Before the soul can see, the harmony within must be attained, and fleshly eyes be rendered blind to all illusion. From the Voice of the Silence by H.P. Blavatsky In this lecture, we're going to be discussing the nature of the three minds. In this type of knowledge, it's important to reflect and understand that this teaching or practical science has methods and practices that can change us and transform us radically. In studying the nature of the mind and studying the nature of what we call consciousness or soul, we make an emphasis that we possess three types of mind. Specifically, we like to relate psychology, which we've been covering in the past few weeks, with the ancient scriptures, founded within the most upheld, venerated, respected, and practiced traditions. This is very different from the psychology of today that has divorced itself from religion and which is no longer very practical for developing one's spirituality. And while we find that Gnosis has a practical application we do refer to a scholastic component, including the study of the Torah or the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the New Testament. Therefore, in discussing these types of psychological teachings, we emphasize the explication 
and utilization of many languages. We like to refer to things in the original language of the scriptures since they hold much more meaning than the adulterated and translated English or plain English that really does not get to the point of what we spiritually seek. So as we discuss these types of principles, we will refer to many traditions and many different languages, but with the purpose of clarifying practical aspects of how to change oneself into something better, to unite with our divine source, that intelligence which religions have given many names, the inner Buddha, the inner Christ, Allah, Vishnu, or amongst the Nordics, Baldur, the Christ within that warrior culture, which at one time was not a culture of violence, with the warrior ethics of the spirit, being strong within one's spirituality in order to conquer the internal factors that cause pain and ignorance. With these principles, we seek to study ourselves. This is about the science or knowledge of understanding our inner nature our inner divinity. When we approach this, we study specifically what we call the three minds, which we are going to elaborate upon in depth. It's important to recognize that the term mind, especially as it has been translated from Eastern doctrine, has been misappropriated and extremely abused in relation with the terms practical application towards one's spiritual development. In this type of teaching, we refer to the soul as consciousness. And we refer to the mind, which is something completely different, as the intellect, a tool in itself which is not our authentic identity. It's important for us in order to have a strong foundation in this teaching and when approaching the science of the mind to reflect by studying the various world scriptures and to comprehend that there are really two types of science relating to the original Latin word scientia, which means knowledge or gnosis. From the Great Rebellion by Samael Onveor. There are two types of science. The first is nothing more than a compost heap of subjective theories that abound out there. The second is the pure science of the great Illuminati the objective science of the being. This demarcation between official and esoteric science 
is fundamental to the study of mind. For while there have been many great marvels in materialistic science, we know that science without genuine spiritual principles has produced atomic bombs, wars, chemical weapons, and more complex ways to harm each other. I believe Albert Einstein said that science without religion is lame, or better said, dangerous, and that religion without science is blind. Without these types of principles to guide one's ethics, one's spirituality, science in turn becomes something detrimental. It is very obvious if we examine the times we live in. We find that despite technologies such as the iPhone, communication, attempts to traverse space, we have in turn become more cruel. Humanity has become more violent, more abusive in relation with drugs and alcohol. There are more acts of genocide than there have ever been. To quote the founder of this tradition, Samael Vior, our humanity is morally bankrupt. This is very painful to behold, especially when we are honest, because we recognize that we are a part of this humanity and in turn contribute to the global problem which, to use Buddhist ideology or principles, is the suffering of all sentient beings. If we really want to change the world, we need to change ourselves first. To rectify our own mistakes. And to have the courage not to blame others. This, in turn, is perhaps one of the most difficult conflicts to overcome the tendency to blame others for our suffering. He offended me. She said this. Can you believe what my family member did? He betrayed me. He hurt me. We undergo a constant slew of negative emotions and violent thoughts. An insurgence of profound suffering. Anger, pride, vanity, etc., which in turn creates conflict and chaos within our internal and external worlds. So if we really want to seek to know the divine, the Lord within, we need to know how to change our own internal world through a very particular mystical science, an esoteric or hidden teaching about the nature of mind. There is a saying in the Gnostic teachings that God searches the nothingness in order to fill it. It's important to have a mind that is silent and serene. So that like a lake, it can reflect the starry heavens of Urania, the cosmic Christ, the solar logos, to use Greek terms for divinity. To unite with divine reality 
and change our way of thinking to improve the world for the better. We study the nature of two principles in Gnostic science. For this purpose, we use the term, the terms employed in Immanuel Kant's philosophy, the famous philosopher from Konigsberg. He stated that there are really two types of experience, which we emphasize in relation with the study of mind. Phenomena, appearance, illusion. Noumena, spirit, the truth, what we seek to unite with. We make this distinction that phenomena relates with occurrence, circumstance, or facts that are perceptible by the senses. We know from original scriptures that the senses in themselves are merely a vehicle through which we experience life, but do not take us to the reality of things. Unfortunately, it is due to the sleep of the consciousness, the sleep of the soul, the sleep of psyche, to use Greek myth, that we fail to perceive the true and inherent reality of life, the truth of things in themselves, or noumena, as they are without contradiction, without illusion. Some people say this world is maya, and that it is from this world of illusion that we must escape, so as to harmonize oneself and unite with God. This is partially true. In these types of studies, we seek to bring down and to experience our own neuma, the spirit, or Christos, Christ, here and now. We consciously invoke that divine intelligence within ourselves so that we know how to live fuller lives without the mind wandering, lost in distractions, hypnotized with the phenomena or appearances of the world. This is the essence of the esoteric study of the mind, which was never given to the public until recently. Materialistic science looks towards phenomena to explain the universe. It even has the audacity to reject, through blind, atheistic beliefs, that there are no guiding spiritual principles that direct the course of life. Phenomena is appearance, what we think something is like. But in truth, we do not really perceive the inherent thing in itself. Such a principle was the basic tenet of Immanuel Kant's philosophy, for which he was greatly criticized. Because for thousands of years, humanity has tried to approach divinity through the intellect, which, according to Kant, cannot know the truth. A very radical postulation to admit and realize within oneself. 
Most of humanity still does not have access to the divine spiritual truths contained within religion or real philosophy, which is philos, love, and sophia, wisdom. Wisdom in Hebrew is chokmah, Christ in the Kabbalah. So genuine philosophy is one's love and connection with that divine source. In relation with the study of the mind, we talk about three types. If humanity were aware that we possess three distinct types of mentality or ways of processing information, many things would be different on this planet. There would be no war, violence, ignorance, hatred, and bigotry. Instead, there would be brotherhood, fraternity, and a unified world effort to alleviate the suffering of all beings. The reasons will become clear as we discuss the particularities of each type of cognition. First, the sensual mind. Second, the intermediate or mystical mind. And third, the inner mind. The sensual mind processes knowledge gained from physical senses or phenomena. The intermediate or mystical mind is the storehouse of theories, beliefs, mysticism, and religions as commonly taught in the exoteric or public traditions of today. The inner mind relates with information garnered from direct mystical experience of the truth and has constituted the esoteric heart of every authentic tradition in the world. This hidden knowledge was only given by mouth to ear, the science which we are explaining here. The divine inner nature we call Christ or Christ mind. It is a spiritual type of mentality and forms the basis of esoteric philosophy and genuine spiritual science. This is completely opposed to the intellect or type of senso mind we commonly experience. In order to address Christ's mind or our consciousness in harmony with the divine, the neuma, it's necessary to address what we commonly term as the sensual mind. The intellect is part of the inferior two types of mind. Here we are referring to the sensual mind, in which the intellect processes itself. We also find that intellect relates to the intermediate mind, which we are also going to explain in depth. The sensual mind is what we typically think of as mind. I think, therefore I am. Or I experience thought, therefore I exist. Or I have a physical body, therefore I am. In these types of studies, we must politely contradict these statements. If we study the spiritual scriptures, the mind in itself is not the spirit, the neuma. And if you're familiar with the Christian gospel, 
when Christ said, I am. Or the Hebrew word, Eheye. This does not refer to the kind of thought we commonly experience. The latter state refers to the awakened and heightened perception of God, which brings peace, joy, and harmony. The sensual mind only knows how to categorize and formulate concepts and information in relation with physical senses. It is a type of mind or experience that only knows physicality. It only knows how to look at physical senses and to establish or formulate information about it. We can see then that this is really the greatest source of our suffering since the majority of our life is spent occupied with physical matters. The intellect, the psychological process or mechanism of the sensual mind, fills our life with worry, anxiety over bills, fear and uncertainty about living conditions today, fear about our health, how long we will live, our evaluations of our failures in this life, and what we need to accomplish physically. These types of sensual thoughts about physical life constitute the churning of the mind, which is the intellect, not connected with divinity. Someone who has a mind that is in harmony with the divine, within, has no fear, has no anxiety, or worry. The problem lies in the sensual mind as we know it, our intellectual processes, which, when subservient to God, constitute a useful vehicle of the Spirit. But as I mentioned to you, if it is divorced from spiritual principles, it becomes the greatest enemy that any person can have. This is the essential tenet or teaching of Islam. Islam in Arabic means submission. So Muslims who truly submit themselves to Allah, bowing to the east towards Mecca, in which they place their head completely to the earth, signify that the intellect or sensual mind must be a servant to God. And it must not be a tool for our own internal misery, anger, negative elements, which create friction in our life. In discussing the nature of mind, we must address the misconceptions about it and how the sensual mind is only a machine. It can present a thesis, it can present an antithesis, but only in relation with physical experience. It can present a theory, it can present a criticism of that theory based upon physical analysis. It has one concept followed by another that can be in complete contradiction to it. This is how we find the common movement of philosophy, at least in the West, specifically, such as with empiricism, but also in Eastern traditions as well, between good and bad, thesis, antithesis. A constant conflict of principles and disagreements 
amongst thinkers. Because the intellect, or sensual mind, only knows how to sway between positive and negative, good and bad, in relation with physical information, physical phenomena. It is caught between what we call the duality of the mind. People always justify themselves with reason. They champion reason. But then again, there's two sides to it. Everyone has their point of view. And any argument can be defended to the death through rigorous analysis, evidence, and explanations. Reason always feeds itself through opposites. There is a very famous principle in Eastern traditions. The duality of forces within nature, the body, the soul. When we discuss the nature of reasoning in itself, there is duality. Just as there is duality within scientific investigation. One which can be cultured by the spirit or another at the surface of anger, pride, or negative internal psychological elements. The sensual mind in itself is caught within dualistic tendencies, thesis, antithesis, good, bad, without capacity to perceive the nature of the synthesis, unable to see different perspectives at once. The sensual mind is rigid. It never accepts anything outside its own materialistic parameters. It cannot comprehend how two arguments may both be true, even when conflicting. From the Great Rebellion by Samael Vior. Never can the formulating power of logical concepts imply the authentic experience of what is real. This statement really gets to the heart of what, we, what this entire lecture is about. Because many people think that because they experience their thought or concept about the nature of physical phenomenon, they feel that they have understood the real intrinsic nature of this type of phenomenon. But the experience is something else. The thought or concept is a projection of the sensual mind. Typically, when science observes any phenomena in this physical universe, they project their theories onto the screen of nature and believe that their theories are the truth, even when they cannot verify the noumena of such an experience. They are trying to explain noumena through phenomena, the truth within appearances, ascertained through the senses, and processed through the sensual mind. For example, scientists have observed the process of rain and classify it as the accumulation of moisture through heat and evaporation from the earth. Little do they know that there are conscious, intelligent principles behind physical phenomena, which the ancient traditions, such as folklore or fairy tales that we grew up with, talk about sylphs and sylphids, nereids and mermaids, elementals of the air and of the water, which help nature to function and flow. 
deep down in these simple processes of life and nature. We find divine, intelligent principles functioning throughout nature, which is a fact we can verify through direct conscious experience. We do not need to believe anything. We can learn to awaken our soul or clairvoyant vision, to awaken within dreams, to converse with those forces or intelligences which work under the auspices of the divine architect, the Elohim in Hebrew, the angels of life and death. Then, such statements are no longer outrageous because we are no longer skeptical. We simply know. To present this type of postulation to materialistic scientists is to incur their ridicule and criticism because due to the conditioning of their mind, they only see physical phenomena. They do not perceive the neuma within things. They do not see the conscious and divine principles that animate nature, the noumena of life. Because their consciousness is asleep. They rely completely on the physical senses. Therefore, many of them are extremely atheist. Atheism falls into the category of the sensual mind because most people do not have the capacity to experience God and therefore feel that there is no God. Ignoring that their degenerated state of mind inhibits them from knowing the truth. Due to their spiritual emptiness, they concoct absurd and ignorant materialistic theories to explain how the universe operates, since they lack the ability to investigate life with the consciousness. So we find that the intellect, as we know it, only knows how to categorize and to theorize. While this pertains to the sensual mind and its processes of physical information, we also find it in relation with spiritual traditions, philosophy, and mystical belief. As we mentioned, the intermediate or mystical mind is the storehouse for beliefs of all types, whether in religion or metaphysical phenomena, but without being grounded in actual experience of divine truths. Noumena. Continuing with Kant's philosophy, who is a very interesting an eminent figure in Western thought. A significant point was made that has been completely ignored by many other philosophers, scientists, theologians, and other persons of knowledge and education. They ignore what he called the antinomy of reason. Basically, an antinomy is a paradox whereby two completely contradictory arguments about the same principle can both be valid. For example, Kant gave what he called his four antinomies. One, space and time, the limitations of the universe. Two, atomism, 
whether the universe is composed of infinitely small particles or none at all. 3. Free will. The problem of his existence relating to causality. And fourth, God. The existence of a divine principle. We find different conflicting arguments, specifically and most importantly, in relation with God. One antinomy, there is a God. The mind debates, produces evidence, apparent facts to support that there is a divine intelligence. This is the reasoning of the intermediate or mystical mind. It rationalizes based upon truths it has not experienced. And then there is the side of atheism that says, There is no God, and here are the facts. This is the counterclaim, or reasoning of the sensual mind, establishing its thesis on inferences based upon physical evidence. Both arguments founded upon their respective evidence, can both be right, according to intellectual analysis. If we do not know how to activate what we call the neuma within. The sensual mind only knows how to create theories, concepts, and store information from the physical senses. The intermediate mind, on the other hand, knows how to create theories and concepts, as well as store information about metaphysical phenomena that one has not experienced. We know at least from education or the educational psychologists of modern school systems that memory is the least reliable form of learning, which tends to be the main emphasis of secondary, middle school, and elementary education, even the primary grades. Memory, or the ability to recite or quote information, to compare ideas, to present concepts or counter-arguments, is the domain of the intellect. It can only theorize and memorize, but it cannot know the truth. The mystical mind, as well as the sensual mind, cannot perceive divine reality. This is why Kant was so ridiculed and opposed because he said that in our present condition, the mind cannot know God. It cannot know noumena. It cannot know the truth. Meanwhile, for thousands of years, people have been trying to prove the existence of God through the intellectual processes of the intermediate mind, the domain of beliefs. Kant's statement bothered many philosophers theologians, and metaphysicians, incurring their criticism, especially while his teaching is a very valuable contribution to both exoteric and esoteric thought. Salman and Vior wrote something very interesting about this in Igneous Rose. The age of reason was initiated by Aristotle. It reached its culmination with Immanuel Kant and ends now with the birth of the new era of Aquarius. Interesting statement. When taking into consideration that Kant's major contribution to philosophy is the realization that the mind cannot know the truth. 
Definitely a good end to the age of intellectualism or subjective reasoning. We're not saying by this that Kant was an initiate and that he developed his own neuma within. But he came to some potent realizations that the intellect, the sensual and intermediate minds, cannot know God. It cannot know the divine within. It's important that we have an open, receptive mind so as to impartially investigate this type of science or teaching. For as the Buddha taught, do not accept anything at face value. One must test his words like gold, burn it, scratch it, to see if it really is gold and of value. If not, disregard it. But through investigation and scientific inquiry, by developing the legitimate science of the being within, we can verify for ourselves these truths, intrinsically within ourselves and within nature. This is the purpose of the inner mind. The inner mind is a type of comprehension that only processes data derived from mystical direct experience within the consciousness of the being. The consciousness, which has freed itself from the dualism of the mind, experiences the reality, which is far beyond the body, the affections, and the mind. It is a type of experience that goes very far beyond the theories and debates that had plagued this planet for so long, in which people have argued over reality, but have not experienced it for themselves. From the Great Rebellion by Samael Vior. Any psychological process that is correctly structured using precise logic is opposed by a different one, strongly developed with similar or superior logic. Then what? The mind can present an intricate philosophical system which is in conflict with another. And both of them may appear to be right even though they disagree. The ability to form concepts in that way does not equate with genuine spiritual experience. This type of knowledge or spiritual experience in the consciousness has to do with transcending the sensual and intermediate minds so that we can verify in a didactic, clear, unbiased, and vigorous way, the essential teachings given in all the religions and scriptures. Only the awakening of the inner mind grants us access to comprehending the world's scriptures. The inner mind stores all the information and spiritual experiences of the awakened consciousness. It is the only type of mind that can know God and properly comprehend Him, since it is a mind that has gained direct access to the nature of divinity, neuma or numina, the truth. It's important to have this as our basis, to be sincere, 
and to earnestly seek for that experience ourselves in order to unite ourselves with the divine through awakening our inner mind. As we awaken the inner mind, we in turn come to know hidden realities. Rudolf Steiner said that once you develop yourself, your neuma, you will experience the reality of etheric forces, the force field behind the physical. He mentioned how flowers, even animals, have a different force field. When you experience that, you feel astonished. To quote Shakespeare in Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. From Act 1, Scene 5, lines 166 to 167. There is even technology now that is able to capture this type of phenomena. It's called the Curlian camera, developed by Russian scientists, in which they captured images of the auric energy or etheric depth of stones, plants, leaves, and water. This is the vital life behind physical matter, known as Yesod in Hebraic Kabbalistic terms, the mysticism of Judaism. The camera in itself has the capacity to show us what is beyond the physical. But through this type of mystical science, we are able to experience that type of perception without the use of other technology. We can say that the greatest technology we possess is our own consciousness. For it has the capacity to perceive the very roots of nature, of all things, if we know how to awaken our inner mind in order to be in harmony with Christ. In order to recognize the states of the inner mind, we have to introspect and be honest. We must evaluate our mind and take an inventory of our experience. What is it that we project? What are moments where we truly comprehend the nature of life in its flow? This takes tremendous practice and esoteric discipline. So when we talk about the intellect and the antinomies of reason, it's important to remember, especially if we're new to this type of knowledge, or even if we have a lot of experience in this or other traditions, to approach this science with the spirit or neuma of investigation, of inquiry, and not to take things at face value. We should practice and employ the techniques of this tradition to awaken our inner mind. Through experimentation and experience, we transcend the theories, beliefs, and limitations of the sensual and intermediate minds. People caught within materialism and intellectual dogmas become overcomplicated. They lack the ability to discern reality from the mind. The inner mind is simple, but profound. It knows how to ascertain mystical truths without resorting to the depressing process of options, of theories, speculating about everything 
but not knowing anything. To reiterate, the sensual mind processes data from physical experience. The intermediate mind in relation with beliefs, theories from religion or mysticism, and the inner mind through knowledge of one's experience of God. The sensual mind bases its theories on the physical senses, which are not reliable, since they are born in time and die in time. They have no direct correlation with the spirit and cannot get to the root of the pneuma or noumena of life. Within the intermediate mind are all the beliefs within traditions we find today, but which are not grounded in actual experience. There's a quote that comes to my mind, which I find is very potent. It comes from Deepak Chopra. Religion is belief in someone else's experience. Spirituality is having your own experience. This is the heart of this type of teaching. It is the essence of Gnosis. The essence of the inner mind, or Christ mind. A mind which stores its information and direct experiences with God. If what we want is to know divinity, the etheric world, energies, and consciousness, we must overcome our own predisposition towards the sensual and or intermediate minds. In relation with the scriptures, there is a very famous story in the teachings of Jesus about the nature of the three minds, particularly the Sadducees and the Pharisees who condemned Christ to death in the Gospels. The Sadducees, the materialists, are persons who belong to the sensual mind, who debate, argue, and theorize about things of the physical senses. If you go back to Greek philosophy, we find the school of Epicureanism and Empiricism, or the nihilistic belief about acquiring as much sensation and pleasure in life as possible before dying. They say one should indulge in senses, or enjoy one's life fully. This, however, ignores the fundamental law that we call karma, cause and effect, in that the soul with all of its attachments, craving and ignorance, continues after the death of the body. This is a fact we can verify by awakening our inner mind. The intermediate mind is represented by the Pharisees. The Pharisees are all of those who are very religious, have a lot of knowledge of scripture, and have studied religion very deeply, but who have no experience of what the scriptures and religions teach. This is the essential reason why they were always in conflict with Christ or Jesus, who was the living representation of the Christ principle in the times of the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Christ was always in conflict with the Sadducees and the Pharisees because he sought to teach them what he knew of the Neuma of God because they were incapable of experiencing God all throughout the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, 
Luke, and John. They constantly sought to test the Lord and confront the Lord, using the intellect in the attempt to trick and sabotage Christ into identifying with their negativity. They asked questions such as, Can you show us God? This is beautifully represented by Pilate asking Jesus, What is truth? Yet Christ remains silent. This is a beautiful answer because the truth is the unknown and to seek to explain it in words misses the point. Although through lectures we seek to help students develop their spiritual practice so you can experience the truth on your own. This raises a very important point that Pilate represents the mind. The sensual mind cannot know the truth. And that is why Jesus in the Gospels, who represents our own intimate Christ, is always in conflict with these inferior types of mind, whether within ourselves or in other people. This has been the great battle of all the prophets who have awakened their inner mind and experienced God. The masters always affirm knowledge from the scriptures and explain this science coming to teach those of the sensual and intermediate minds, but are always being rejected. Since humanity loves to defend egotism, desire, the sensual and intermediate minds, it always rejects the Lord in every time, place, and culture throughout history and today. The teachings of Christ are very radical and require the complete renunciation of one's egotistical sense of self or one's inner negativity symbolizes the seven deadly sins anger pride lust vanity greed gluttony laziness this was symbolized in the story of lazarus or the man who was possessed by many demons christ asked him who are you and the man said we are legion for we are many from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verse 9. This typifies a type of psychology that we commonly have and commonly find on this planet. A mind that is fractured, fragmented into a multiplicity of discursive psychological elements. This is what we call ego in Gnostic psychology. It is this inner negativity we seek to eliminate in order to awaken what we call the inner mind. What we call soul or consciousness is trapped within all of those elements, the pluralized ego or negative self. Do not confuse this with the higher self or innermost, the being, our inner God. Our consciousness or soul can be referred to as nefesh, animal soul, which is trapped in the ego, like the genie in Aladdin's lamp. This is a Middle Eastern symbol of this teaching. The lamp represents the ego, which is the foundation of the sensual and intermediate minds. So when one knows how to awaken or to extract the genie, from the lamp, one can perform miracles. 
And this is specifically in relation with the awakening of the inner mind. The inner mind is the mind which stores and comprehends the information experienced with the spirit. It is a type of knowledge that relates with the soul. It is inner because it pertains to the very root of our being. All the mystical experiences that the disciple has, such as through samadhis or ecstasies, whether out of the physical body or in meditation, those are experiences of the inner mind. To go to the Latin root of ecstasy, we find ex statuo, to stand outside oneself. It is when the consciousness or the genie is pulled from the lamp, from the conditioning filters of the ego, in order to unite with the divine reality. So when one has that type of knowledge, this indicates the synthesis of the inner mind, a mind that knows God, a Christ mind that experiences the divine source. Therefore, we find a stark differentiation between this type of mind with the previous two, the sensual mind, which is only occupied with the five senses, which is transitory and phenomenal, not in the sense that it is stellar, but that it relates with the world of phenomena or appearances. We have the intermediate mind that only has beliefs and no experience, which is commonly what we find in many religions and spiritual groups. But the awakening of the inner mind is very different and relates with the practical experience of God, the scientific experience or perception of the divine within. Understanding this differentiation is important because Christ warned his disciples and warned us. From the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 6 through 8 and 11 through 12. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread? How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread? that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. When we talk about leaven, we're speaking about yeast, which is placed in bread in order to inflate it. Now, this has no other practical purpose but to make the bread more appealing and enjoyable the senses. It does not add to the bread itself. Jesus often said that I am the living bread, from John chapter 6, verse 51, which is lechem in Hebrew. We also find ceremonial Jewish bread named challah, which is the same letters, but in different sequence. This refers to the bread of knowledge or wisdom, symbolizing the science of the inner mind. Chet reminds us of Chaya, life. Lamed is the letter of the hanged apostle who sacrifices himself for humanity 
in the twelfth arcanum of the Tarot. And He is the womb through which the initiate is born. Together, the bread of Christ is the life force through which any apostle is born. Interesting that Christ was supposedly born in Bethlehem, which means house of God or house of bread, which hides this meaning here. Now it's important to remember in the scriptures that the unleavened bread is the pure science of the divine, which is why in the Old Testament the Jews ate unleavened bread, or matzah, without the yeast of theories and beliefs, the yeast of the Sadducees and Pharisees, the theories which seemingly inflate and make the doctrine better than it is, which is an adulteration. Matzah is the pure mana from God, which means genuine faith or direct experience, and was eaten as a symbol of divine remembrance within one's psyche, upon achieving states of liberation from suffering. From Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 3. You are not to eat any chametz with it. For seven days you are to eat with it matzah, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. Thus you will remember the day you left the land of Egypt as long as you live. Matzah also has etymological similarity to mitzvah, which means commandment. So this tradition is not about literally eating bread as a symbol of Christ's sacrifice, like the ignoramuses suppose, but of fulfilling the Ten Commandments within ourselves, which we receive through the strength of the bread, the holy Gnostic unction, as dictated by our Lord Melchizedek to Abraham in Genesis 14. When we truly examine the religions of today, we find they are all adulterated and watered down. We find this degradation within all the great traditions of the world. It has happened to Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism. All religions have experienced this problem, where the great prophets would teach the science of the inner mind, the direct experience of God, and the followers who studied but didn't practice would only theorize, believe, and condemn their teacher. This has happened with Jesus and many great masters, constituting a great problem. Christ said, I have come not to break the law, but to fulfill. Therefore, we find his teachings are completely founded on the Old Testament. Since he was a rabbi of Kabbalah, Christ referred to himself as the bread of wisdom. He was born in Bethlehem, house of bread, the pure science of direct experience. A very great Kabbalistic statement. However, most Christians know nothing of Kabbalah let alone the Gnostic Kabbalah. And therefore, even when they believe in the Eucharist, present a dead corpse without a heart. Also, 
Such imbeciles eat inflated bread. They take the matzah, or better said, the mitzvah, the commandments and instructions given in the Old and New Testaments, or even the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Buddhist scriptures, etc., and give it a personal, whimsical interpretation without basis in the direct knowledge of God or the authentic scriptures. Pharisees not only exist in Judaism and Christianity, but all over the world, in every religion. Christ taught to beware of the yeast or leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees, meaning people very strongly rooted in the sensual or mystical minds. They take the teachings of Christ and adulterate it. They project all their materialistic theories and metaphysical beliefs into that teaching, like yeast and bread, in order to inflate it, seemingly to make it better or more appealing. Meanwhile, it only adulterates the original teaching, and this was Christ's warning, that his teachings would degenerate after his death and resurrection. Because if we look in these times with Christianity, we understand that it died many centuries ago, precisely since it divorced itself from its Kabbalistic roots. It produced many initiates in the past, but every religion is born, has life, and dies in time. So Christ warned about this by saying there would be a time in which the Pharisees and Sadducees would take his teaching and adulterate it. You find in public Christianity people who raise their hand and say, I believe in Christ and I am saved. Meanwhile, they ignore the Apostle James that faith without internal works is dead. From the book of James, chapter 2, verse 26. Christ, or the inner mind, is always crucified amongst criminals. Because the sensual and intermediate minds have no direct knowledge of God. Therefore, humanity does not recognize Him, and thereby rejects Him. It's interesting to note, however, that the word Pharisee in Arabic, or Farsi, can indicate, esoterically, worshipper of fire. Someone who worships the flame. Christ. But how do they worship Christ? That's the question. The Pharisees who condemn and crucify Christ supposedly worship the Lord. This is the great treason, irony, and damnation of these individuals since they crucify the Lord by even using his own words against him. So the teachings of the Master are given, and the disciples, who only remain within the mystical mind, take that knowledge in order to condemn their teacher. This problem happened with Christ and many other initiates. Jesus warned very heavily against this fact. From the book of Matthew, chapter 23, Verses 25 to 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites. For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. A Pharisee or Pharisee studies this type of knowledge, studies this type of science, but only remains within beliefs. The quote Samael on Vior, the damnation of the Pharisees is that they use the very same words of the Christ in order to condemn Christ. They therefore have a grave karma to pay in relation with that because they take the words of the Lord and reject the Lord with the same teaching but adulterated. What many Pharisees don't understand is that Christ did not come to teach the angels. He came to teach, teach the sinners. From the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. What great humility! That is the nature of the inner mind. Jesus, who incarnated of the Christ, is the greatest initiate our humanity has ever known. For him to come and serve us is mind-boggling. Because the greatest in heaven are those who serve best. These initiates were once in our position. Therefore they feel tremendous compassion. The Pharisees, however, feel they are better than the sinners and thereby are filled with sanctimoniousness and false piety. Ignoring that the goats, individuals ignorant of the science of transmutation, may often be closer to the truth than the sheep who know about alchemy, tantra, sexual transmutation, but who do not seriously practice. Their mystical mind is very inflated, like the adulterated bread of knowledge. It comes to my mind, an experience I had in the internal planes many years ago, before I physically met any other students or teachers of Gnosis. An initiate came to my house in the astral plane and was instructing me in relation with spiritual groups. She warned me to beware of the Gnostics, the spiritualists, and other groups. Individuals who say they practice but don't practice. She warned that many of these people came from the times of Jesus. The return and recurrence of the individuals who condemned Christ, and who are now studying this type of knowledge, but repeating their ancient fanaticism and mistakes. It was a very interesting experience. Just because a person studies this type of knowledge, doesn't mean he or she practices it. Living the truth implies a lot of work and a lot of practice. It is very difficult. Many students whether in Buddhism, Christianity, or Islam, Theosophy, Rosicrucianism, Tarot, Kabbalah, Anthroposophy, Gnosis, 
etc. Study the books, but they don't practice. They are Pharisees. Pharsis. Worshipping the fire in their beliefs, but crucifying the Lord in their actions. Such as when authentic initiates come to teach them. The prophets are always rejected by students, even with the very same words that Christ taught. It's a very grave problem. The problem is ignorance. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Spiritual students are ignorant that they cause harm. And if they knew that what they're doing is harmful, they would not do it. Such as with the case of Paul of Tarsus, the great Gnostic master, whose inner divine name is Hilarion IX. He was said to have been killing Christians before he had an illuminating experience that shattered his beliefs, completely converting him. He was a Pharisee, Farsi, studying the tradition of Kabbalah. It was traditionally depicted slaying Christians. This type of behavior shouldn't surprise us. There were many initiates in the past who, before entering into initiation, physically killed, but afterward repented, understanding that their actions were wrong. We find this in the Buddhist story of Milarepa, who became the greatest saint of Tibet. He used to be a murderer. He practiced black magic and many other negative arts. But he had an experience, like Paul of Tarsus, and realized that what he was doing was wrong, that he was a Pharisee with many beliefs, and through humility he awoke his inner mind, transforming himself completely. He's a great master, a great initiate. Usually, the greatest sinners become the greatest saints, because the lower one falls, the higher one can ascend. We find this such as with alcoholics. To use a mundane example, we find that since they have suffered so much, they repent and say, I will never do that again. That is gnosis. Real comprehension that those actions create suffering. When they fully comprehend that alcohol is destructive, they cease to indulge in those habits, no matter what the temptations that arise. However, the problem is that many spiritual devotees do not comprehend that they are merely intellectual and fanatic, and therefore do not repent like Paul of Tarsus or Milarepa. Regarding spiritual groups, since we have participated in many, we can attest that this is a great problem. Members are often very indoctrinated with the intellect, but have no spiritual experience, simply because they do not practice what they preach. Spiritual schools can become grounds of contention, conflict, and argument, without a genuine basis in love, fraternity, understanding, and compassion. Anyone who has been with theosophists Rosicrucians or other spiritual groups for a long enough time is able to witness the collective ego of such groups. The greatest crimes are usually committed within such communities. Let us provide concrete examples. 
the esoteric tradition of the West, the Order of the Golden Dawn, was founded around the turn of the century. It was constituted by very intelligent persons. However, no matter how prestigious or exalted such esotericists consider themselves to be, many of them chose to enter into bickering, politics, and even sorcery. Many of them degenerated into black magic and competition for power. While presenting themselves as spiritual people, emphasizing divine ritual, Kabbalah, and everything else, many of these practitioners entered into vicious types of psychic attacks. Dion Fortune wrote about it extensively, having been a member of the Golden Dawn. While the original order was very spiritual, beneficial, and altruistic, it degenerated to the point to where its members practiced psychic and occult violence in the internal planes. This is why it is important to remember what Christ taught. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Book of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 3. Those with a big intellect cannot even fit through a doorway, which is da'at, gnosis, since the mind is so stuck in books, intellectual theories, and knowledge. Such people typically filled with bookish culture are extremely arrogant and proud, feeling they are better than other persons because they have read. Meanwhile, they have no experience. They simply don't know anything. I will quote for you Sabah and Vior in relation with this subject in his book The Major Mysteries, specifically in the section entitled Preparation for Initiation. All spiritual schools, orders, and lodges are delectable gardens within which are nests of dangerous vipers and poisonous flowers filled with perfume. Ineffable enchantments that lead us to the abyss as well as sublime theories that can lead us to the precipice and sweet smiles that carry us to disgrace exist within those schools where the devotees are filled with hypocrisy and fanaticism. Indeed, the opium of theories is more dangerous than death. Spiritual devotees hug with one hand and with the other they stab the back with the sharp dagger of treason. It's important to be aware of this fact that people who say they are very spiritual commit the worst crimes. For example, Hitler. At one point, he knew the science, but he deviated. He let himself be hypnotized by a Tibetan known as the man in the green gloves who entered his occult order and convinced him to practice very negative arts or black magic. So, he horribly destroyed himself, but also many millions of people. He had very good intentions. He was an initiate at one point. But who let his mind be pulled by a Pharisee? He was very convinced that what he was doing was right, feeling very holy. People even commit adultery in the name of spirituality. There are innumerable examples of devotees who had sexual intercourse with their guru 
and not with their spouse. Because they were told that in order to advance spiritually, they must practice Tantra with their teacher. Such individuals appear very holy, with big beards and very elaborate names, manipulating the naive and stupid. This is why Jesus taught, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. From the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 15. They come to devour souls and steal power. This is the nature of the Pharisee. Fear is a great motivator among spiritual groups. Fear of hell, fear of death. People who only know the sensual and intermediate minds have no experience of God and therefore become associated and rely on groups out of fear of punishment. Now, a spiritual group is important simply for the benefit of transmitting the esoteric doctrine, the sciences, the methods by which we can change individually. It's important to learn what one can, but really it is an individual effort. Groups can provide energy, enthusiasm, strength, and instruction. But the real instruction comes from within, when we awaken our inner mind. This is how we know how to unite with our internal divinity. Samayon Vior and many initiates warned about fanaticism in groups, where people feel that because of their attendance, they are somehow saved. You find this in every tradition of spirituality, where fear is the motivating factor for maintaining spiritual communities. In order not to be hypnotized by these distractions, one must be like Odysseus in the scene with the sirens, as depicted in the Greek myth by Homer. Odysseus was returning home to Ithaca from the Trojan War. Here you see an image of Odysseus tied to a mast of his ship, and the sirens are attempting to pull Odysseus and his crew to shipwreck. This is the essence of the Greek myth, where sirens would tempt sailors to crash into the reefs. This represents how negative elements of the mind, such as fear, lust, and fanaticism, seek to pull the disciple out of the path. Notice how the mast is by Odysseus' spine, which means he is rooted in willpower through Tantra, working with the forces of the Divine Mother Kundalini, which is the source of real faith, up the spinal column to the brain. We also find that this image corresponds to what Nietzsche denominated the tarantulas and thus spoke Zarathustra. He employed this term for people who try to teach spiritual doctrines, but who are truly extremely vengeful and spiteful, such as with the Christian priests who teach hellfire and damnation. However, this applies more to people in esotericism who know about Gnosis, but are horrible hypocrites and do not have development, wisdom, or compassion. As it says in the aforementioned text, Alas, then the tarantula, my old enemy, bit me. With godlike assurance and beauty, it bit my finger. Punishment there must be, and justice it thinks. And here he shall not sing songs in honor of enmity in vain. 
Indeed, it has avenged itself. And alas, now it will make my soul, too, whirl with revenge. But to keep me from whirling, my friends, tie me tight to this column. Rather would I be a stylite even than a whirl of revenge. Verily, Zarathustra is no cyclone or whirlwind. And if he is a dancer, he will never dance the Tarantella. Thus spoke Zarathustra. When fanatics preach in this way, they bite the soul and seek to fulfill their mistaken sense of power and justice, trying to incite their victims to react. One must be like Odysseus among such people in order not to return evil with evil, to tie one's mind to the mast of willpower, to be humble in spirit and not respond with anger or hatred. One must control one's senses in order not to be pulled away from the teaching just as the crew of Odysseus had wax in their ears in order to ignore the sirens. While Odysseus was tied to the mast in order to not abandon the ship and drown himself in the sea of theories. While we address the nature of spiritual groups, what's most important is not to point our finger at others. We must address our own inner Pharisee which believes and thinks it knows, but has no cognizance of the truth. Therefore, it's important to have genuine faith, but this term is poorly understood. Carl Jung said that faith is no substitute for experience. He also said that faith that comes by miraculously could disappear equally miraculously. We're going to talk about the specific difference between belief and faith. In relation with Carl Jung's quote, he's speaking about belief. But in the Gnostic teachings, we make a differentiation between authentic faith and the belief of the mind. That is precisely the problem we find in people, that they lack genuine faith which is the direct experience of God, the neuma or noumena behind all things. Faith is one's cognitive experience, one's cognitive knowledge based upon the direct perception of God. Belief is the domain of the mind. The intermediate and sensual minds only believe or theorize about the nature of God, but do not know. This is why Christ was crucified and who pronounced with great pain, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. From the book of Luke, chapter 23, verse 34. The Pharisees, or the great spiritualists of the time, could not accept him as the prophet of that era. But this also represents something in our history. It more importantly represents something in our psychology. Because the scriptures in themselves have an allegorical application to our life. Adhering to mere history is to be dead in the present moment. Many Pharisees or persons of the mystical mind will say, No, it is impossible. You cannot know God. That's what such individuals declare, through writings or pamphlets, that God is unknown. They say humanity cannot know God. This is sad. 
Because Christ said, Know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Referring to the original Greek root word, gnosis, the experience of God. The intermediate or mystical mind only takes information and theorizes about what it doesn't know. It judges based on appearances, phenomena, without perception of the noetic principles, the latter relating with Christ's mind, noose, or noumena. These are spiritual archetypes that vivify matter. It's sad, but when people say they are agnostic, or that one cannot experience or know God, that is admitting that one is a fool, incapable of living life with real understanding or wisdom. The truth is that the prophets were once like us. So if they could experience divinity, so can we. If this were not true, we would never have received so many scriptures from different religions, which all taught the science to experience God and to unite with the divine. I would like to quote for you a passage from the Quran, which beautifully explains the differentiation between the three minds and the true meaning of solar conscious faith. From Surah 2, Al-Baqarah, verses 5-7. through And they say, None but Jews or Christians who follow the dogmas of the intermediate mind shall enter paradise. This is their wish. Say, give your proofs from the consciousness if ye speak the truth. But they who set their face with resignation Godward, meaning to, sub to perform Islam, to submit one's sensual and intermediate minds towards the East, towards one's Neyuma, and do what is right by awakening the inner mind. Their reward is with their Lord, no fear shall come on them, neither shall they be grieved. Moreover, the Jews say, The Christians lean on naught. On naught lean the Jews, say the Christians, yet both are readers of the book. So with like words say they who have no knowledge, gnosis, direct experience. But on the resurrection day, Allah shall judge between them as to that in which they defer. So we find in the Quran, that only men of knowledge, men of understanding, could interpret the scriptures through awakening the inner mind. The fanatics always kill and debate in the name of religion, if not physically, then with words, by seeking to indoctrinate members of other groups against their will, or by forcing their ways of thinking upon others. This is a form of black magic. To impose one's will upon another person in order to get what one wants. This is the problem with the mistaken beliefs in degenerated religions. As I said, the greatest sinners can become the greatest saints. And in the Bible, we have the story of the prodigal son. He left his home, his father, and his brothers in order to enter the world of prostitution, drugs, sensualism, forgetting his neuma his inner father, or Abba in Hebrew. Yet because he renounced, repented, and came back, his father had great celebrations in his honor, honoring him more because since he left, he returned.
For I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. In the book of Luke, chapter 15, verse 7. In order to truly repent, it's important that we are honest and seriously evaluate what, where we are spiritually to really examine what it is we know and what it is we don't know. It's this honesty or humility that opens the gateway to genuine experience. So in these studies, we often refer to the heart doctrine, the experience of God, and the eye doctrine, teachings that are merely theoretical beliefs, speculation. When we know how to awaken our inner mind through our heart, when we actually experience God here and now, the heart becomes inflamed and we live life more intensely with greater joy, humility, because we've experienced God and know that He is always with us. It is this direct knowledge that we call faith. Faith is a force. It's not a belief. It is not a concept in the mind. It is knowledge from experience. Faith is a direct experience of the divine. This might sound redundant, but this is necessary to emphasize. Faith has nothing to do with speculations, scholasticism, or religious debates. When we know something from experience, our conviction is unbreakable. No outer force, no matter how strong, could break that faith. This type of knowledge is within the heart when we know with absolute certainty and conviction that we have an inner being, that he guides and illuminates our actions in life and seeks to direct us to be in harmony and union with him and her. It is an unbreakable conviction that blossoms in the temple of the heart, which is why we refer to the awakening of the inner mind as the doctrine of the heart. It is a genuine type of joy and beauty when we come to know God for ourselves, to verify what the great authors have written about. We also understand that they taught a basic introduction to a limitless science, the science of one's personal knowledge of the divine, of Christ. This experience gives us hope. For oftentimes we are overwhelmed by anxiety, fear, anger, resentment, depression, longing, or negative emotions. Faith transforms us radically and has the potential to completely illuminate our soul. It's important to remember that this knowledge is always born within the heart and relates to this psychological center in the human machine. There's many experiences we can have in relation with superior motion. We discussed in previous weeks how our psychology is composed of intellect, emotions, sexuality, instinct, and movement, which are physical components to our body, but more importantly relate with psychological processes. We have superior centers that don't belong to negativity or ego, superior intellect, and superior emotions. It is in the superior emotional center where we experience genuine faith, 
that blossoming joy and peace, which is produced when we practice effectively and don't crave results, but simply let them come on their own. The hard doctrine is one's knowledge of Christ. Therefore, we teach that Gnosis is a hard doctrine. It has nothing to do with theory. Even though we study books and seek to possess a strong intellectual, spiritual culture, so as to guide our heart. Book culture and knowledge by itself, without the Neuma, is dangerous. It creates a lot of suffering. Since individuals may read a lot, but have no experience of God. When we know how to experience God through practical science, discipline, and methodology, then the literature becomes accessible and vivified, meaning that the knowledge in print becomes living and impregnates our heart. Even if all the demons of the ten directions, to quote Buddhist cosmology, want to pull that from you, they can't. Faith becomes so ingrained, is so potent, that it has the capacity to remove all obstacles. In relation to solar conscious faith, within the heart doctrine, we have the following passage from the Voice of the Silence, an ancient scripture transcribed by Blavatsky. Learn above all to separate head learning from soul wisdom, the I from the heart doctrine. False learning is rejected by the wise and scattered to the winds by the good law. Its wheel revolves for all, the humble and the proud. The doctrine of the eye is for the crowd, the doctrine of the heart for the elect. The first repeat in pride, Behold, I know. The last, they who in humbleness garnered, low confess, thus have I heard. Great Sifter is the name of the heart doctrine, O disciple. The heart doctrine is called the Great Sifter, just like a person would go to a river during the gold rush in the Yukon, sifting for gold through the riverbed soil, sifting through the coarse sand to find the purities. This is a perfect analogy for this knowledge, evidenced by the fact that only a few people are interested in these studies. We don't have a huge auditorium with thousands of people who generally want to sift through the mind in order to procure the gold of the spirit, the neuma or noumena of life. Because most people are fascinated with the theories of this world. They don't have willpower to really check within themselves and comprehend their inner illusions or phenomena to see past the teachings of the Pharisees. They lack the courage to truly investigate the science of the living bread, the matzah, born from interior affliction, to recognize the horrendous state we are in. Many do not want to follow the Lord's commandments, the mitzvot of God. We accomplish this through practice. It's a sifter. Because, as all the initiates have taught, not many individuals want to change. Not many want to get at the heart of life, the neuma, the noumena, 
the heart of, of God. Instead, people are lost in the labyrinth of phenomena. This truth was beautifully illustrated in the Greek myth of the Minotaur, whereby a maze was constructed to house this mythological beast, half man and half bull, representing our dual nature, composed of both spirit, the man or Nauma, and our animalistic psychology, the lunar ego. Many would go into the maze and get lost, slain by their own internal beast. However, the great solar hero Theseus conquered, entered the maze, and killed the Minotaur, the animal ego. That maze is the mind. Many go into it, few return. As Christ taught in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And men are there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. We need courage. It is the reason why we are here in this class, because we want to know for ourselves. It takes tremendous willpower and courage to be able to come to the realization that one is ignorant, lost within the mind, and wants to know the truth. Belief is the I doctrine. Faith is the heart doctrine. Faith is what we know. When we know something is true, we can't deny it. Even if we would lose our life. And Joan of Arc lost her life for that very reason. When she, she also said, I would rather die than do something which I know to be a sin or to be against God's will. Knowledge or numina of God is permanent. It cannot be forgotten. Martyrs of the past who were killed for their faith had loved God so much, their compassion for humanity was so great that they gave their life willingly. See the Passion of Al-Halaj in the Narrow Way by Samayon Vior, previously published as the Doomdarian Race. This might be inconceivable for us, swamped by our own negativity and problems. But we all have this potential for divine love within. Noetic thought or noumenal consciousness. As a foundation of this tradition, we seek to develop such compassion for self and others. Born from comprehension of the causes of suffering and the transformation of mistaken perceptions or phenomena within. The compassion of the inner mind or Christ mind is so powerful within the initiate that he can give his life for others, such as with the crucifixion of the Master Jesus. This Master physically gave of himself completely in order to demonstrate with his birth, life, passion, death, and resurrection this science because his faith and love was so profound. The real initiates are always the embodiment of pure love, born from the direct knowledge and experience of the divine. To quote Samael and Vior from perhaps the most important writings within universal Gnosticism ever produced, an exegesis from a scripture called the Gnostic Bible, the Pisces Sophia Unveiled. Faith is pure knowledge, direct experiential wisdom, 
Faith has always been confused with vain beliefs. Gnostics must never make such a serious mistake. Faith is direct experience of the real, the magnificent vivification of the inner human being, authentic divine cognition. Faith is the direct perception of what is real. It is fundamental wisdom. It is the experience of that which is beyond the body, the affections, and the mind. Inner spiritual experiences unfold within our perception through the application of forces. It is the perception of the Nayuma within all things. Instead of seeing phenomena such as leaves, plants, or people, we see auras, we see thoughts, we see feelings. We experience things in a more integral way. People who want to see miracles, such as the animation of statues, which is a well-documented phenomenon, or individuals walking on water, can experience a much greater miracle, the transformation of one's negative states. This is really genuine change and spiritual experience. This should not be confused with extreme forms of asceticism, such as walking on coals, which is a spiritual form of circus performances. Some people think that entering a hypnotic trance, swallowing swords, or cutting one's flesh and surviving makes certain practitioners spiritual or holy. Such acts are not genuine mystical experience, but constitute fakirism. Fakirs develop enough willpower to withstand pain. However, fakirism does not develop the will of the spirit. It is merely the conquering of physical sensation for that purpose alone. Willpower, increased to an infinite degree, still cannot awaken the consciousness or develop the spirit within. That is because willpower must be guided by conscious efforts, not the mechanicity of the mind. The type of faith we speak about is spiritual perception, whereby we see the vital elements of life our own internal worlds, our thoughts, feelings, in a new way. Typically, a good sign of deepening spiritual perception is when we see a familiar thing in a completely new way, in a way we never saw before. This is how our state should be from moment to moment. That is the direct perception of what is real, seeing things in a new way, constantly, and not to be stuck within one's mental processes, the intellect, thesis, antithesis, etc., the duality of the mind. We find this image of Doubting Thomas serves as a representation of what the inner mind is. When Christ was crucified, slain, and resurrected on the third day, he returned to teach his disciples. Many of them approached Thomas and said, The Lord has arisen. He replied, I don't believe you. I need to see an experience for myself. Even when before the presence of the Master, he doubted. This demonstrates the level of investigation, inquiry, and criticism he had to enact to really verify what is true. After placing his finger in the Lord's side, his wound, he said, yes, this is the Christ. This is the type of conviction we speak of. This demonstrates to us that even if Christ is before us, we must always seek to clarify our understanding intimately 
profoundly so that we genuinely know. And so no one can divert or mislead us because there exists many wolves in sheep's clothing, as we mentioned. People often criticize Doubting Thomas, that he was skeptical. He represents the science of experimentation and verification, the Buddhist philosophy of experiential wisdom, to only stand upon experiences we have tested and proven true. Skepticism belongs to the sensual mind, not the experiential knowledge of the inner mind, the Apostle Thomas. Knowing the truth for ourselves is intuition. We've spoken previously about imagination, inspiration, intuition. The three obligatory steps to initiation. Imagination is the perception of images or phenomena. Inspiration is the realization that there is a symbol involved, whether we see one in meditation or we perceive life in a new way. We feel inspired with cognizance. We feel that there is some meaning in this event or situation, in one's internal states or conscious sentiment, known as superior emotion. Intuition is comprehension, when we know something in our heart completely and nothing can divert us. This is the type of faith that Thomas had in relation with Christ. He only accepted what came from God, and we should do the same meaning that as much as we have books or as much as we have lectures and classes, what's important is to really receive the knowledge from God, to understand it in meditation. Our inner Buddha, our inner Christ, He is the teacher, the prophet, the messenger. We each have our own. Therefore, we must seek to investigate this so that we can verify these things for ourselves in more depth. I'd like to quote for you the great Master Moria from the Dayspring of Youth, who talks about faith very beautifully. He describes faith as a manifestation of force, as a utilization of force. As we mentioned earlier, when we awaken our perception, we perceive forces in a new way. We perceive the energy behind phenomena. This perception is fueled precisely by that force relating to eros, the sexual energy. Eros awakened psyche. Throughout the dayspring of youth, Master Moria describes how it is this determinative energy that the yogi receives his or her strength and capacity for meditation or spiritual practice. It is this energy that fuels one's faith, one's internal experience. Whereas we find in the first commandment of Moshe, you shall love thy God with all thy heart, emotional brain with all thy mind, intellectual brain, with all thy soul, conscious will, and with all thy strength, bodily energies, especially the forces we carry within sex. This energy, known as Kundalini in the East, has the power to transform us radically and elevate us to real faith. From the day spring of youth. Here we think a note upon faith should be of interest. Initiates say that its meaning has not or has been misunderstood. Faith, as the world uses it, possesses no spiritual nature, though in the secondary system it means power and energy applied to action. All success in yoga comes from this application, for the true quality of faith is a solar force 
that illumines the mind and attracts with atoms of power and energy. More human wrecks have resulted from the misconception of this quality than man realizes. So it's a force. The solar energy we have in our breath, in our body, within our sexual energy, within our psyche. Eros has the capacity to awaken us completely, which is discussed in literatures such as The Perfect Matrimony. How a married couple can fully awaken that sexual force in order to awaken the Kundalini completely, the solar force, which can rise from within the spinal column to illuminate the mind and then the heart. This is the path of initiation. Single individuals can practice also with the solar force, but with less power, developing what can be called genuine faith. As Moria indicates, faith is not belief. It is intention and will, with force, applied to action. This is why James the Apostle stated in the book of James, chapter 2, verses 20 to 26. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believeth, believeth in God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You can believe in something, but if you don't practice, if you don't have the energy or force to fulfill practices of concentration, meditation, and samadhi, then one's faith is meaningless. It is then not genuine faith. The solar force applied to action. The solar force grants us the entire capacity to develop real faith and change within. To believe without working and transmutation is to be dead. The corpse of exoteric Christian religion is a testament to this fact. If we possess even a grain of faith, it has the potential and capacity to remove any obstacles. When we have true conviction and knowledge, when we really experience God and apply these teachings to our life, we can overcome any difficulty. This is why Christ said in the book of Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Even if we have one small experience, a moment of comprehension, which is something we all have, since we are all interested in these studies. We are propelled to want to work on ourselves, to change, to be inspired, to want to practice, to want to learn real religion. It is this grain of seed that can blossom into a tree of life. It is the solar sexual force, the determinative energy of God, that grants us the ability to transform us radically. Relating to this, we see that the Egyptian Torah is the Hebraic Torah, meaning law. These are different laws that govern our universe and psychological experience, mapped out by the initiatic Kabbalah. We study in Gnostic Kabbalah the 22 major arcana of the Torah, as well as the minor arcana. 
The first card is the magician, who initiates every genuine spiritual work. The Hebrew letter associated with this card is Aleph, the wind or breath, associated with the sacred name of God, Eheye Asher Eheye, I am that I am, which is what God, or better said, Keter in the tree of life, the burning bush, said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Aleph is the wind, the breath of pranayama or alchemy that transmutes the sexual matter into solar force of Christ. Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It is what initiates within us. The breath is in itself the solar force that we harness through pranayama and alchemy. It is the energy that grants us the capacity to change. The blood in our body is the medium or means of transmission of that force. Blood in Hebrew is dam, dalet mem. When we breathe, we assimilate oxygen into our body, which mixes with our blood. Aleph enters our blood or dam. Aleph with dalet and mem is adam, the man made into the image of God. Therefore, it is through the science of breath where we accumulate solar force. And as the Master Moria explained, it is the solar force applied to action that constitutes real faith. Therefore, if we do not transmute, we have no real faith. I'm now going to describe a practice for you that can be performed in the morning hours. This is known as the runic exercises. What I want to f you to focus on is the runman. See the figure on the right within the image. We have a man standing with his arms raised to heaven. This is the position of the rune. Simply put, this is the man made into the image of God, the symbol of Christ crucified with his hands and feet nailed to the cross, supplicating to God to be redeemed of his suffering. Now when we say this represents the man, we are not excluding women, because the word man comes from the Sanskrit manas, which means mind. Or better said, intuitive mind, inner mind. And when we say human being, we are referring to whom? The spirit, the neuma, or noumena within a person. That works as breath upon the mind. Therefore, a real man or human being is the spirit man, the spirit mind, the inner mind. So as a posture, the rude man helps us awaken our manas, our inner mind, through transmutation, breath. It is a yogic position that can be practiced in the early hours in the morning or at night. Those are good times to practice due to the energies present. Again, with the assimilation of the breath, the prana, the Christic force of the morning hours, which vibrates very intensely, this energy has the capacity to stimulate and awaken our consciousness, to develop what we call genuine faith. In this runic position, we pronounce a prayer, known as the prayer to the solar logos, as explained in Esoteric Medicine and Practical Magic by Samayon Vior, in which we say, O thou, solar logos, igneous emanation, substance, and consciousness of Christ, powerful life, whereby which everything advances. Come unto me and penetrate me. Enlighten me. 
bathe me, go through me and awaken within my being all those ineffable substances that are as much a part of thee as a part of me. Universal and cosmic force, mysterious energy, I conjure thee, come unto me, remedy my affliction, cure me from this illness, and take apart from me this suffering, so I can have harmony, peace, and health. I ask thee in thy sacred name, which the mysteries of the Gnostic Church have taught me, so thou can make all the mysteries of this plane and superior planes vibrate within me, and that all those forces together may achieve the miracle of my healing. So be it. Remember that the magician from the first arcanum of the eternal tarot assimilates the Aleph, the Prana, the Christ force, which as Moria stated is the potency of real faith. Next, in this position, we repeatedly pronounce a mantra, a sacred sound. Om Tat Sat. This mantra was mentioned in the voice of the silence a holy scripture transcribed by Master Blavatsky. Om generates and transmutes sexual power to the heart, awakens our superior emotional center. Om is prolonged. Om Tat Sat pronounced Tat Sat is short. These latter two mantras open the spiritual and psychic atmosphere around us so as to bring down the forces of the Ain Sof Aor, the limitless light of Christ, and Keter. Since Tat reminds us of the Hebrew letter Tav, which is the central letter in the word Keter, signifying seal, covenant, perfection, completion. Sat is the seity beyond Keter, the solar absolute. These mantras are exceptionally powerful, helping us to vibrate with the solar Christ, forces of faith, through the transmutation of our sexual energies. Neuma, or spirit, relates with the word pneumonia, which is a problem with breathing, indicating that the spirit is associated with the breath. When we talk about the science of energy, breath is highly important. Neuma relates with pranayama, the science of breathing, in that the spirit has the capacity to generate and open a type of mind which is in harmony with Christ, the divine source, the divine intelligence. Let us recall that the runic exercises are a combination of meditation, prayer, and pranayama, which works with the erotic force. The psyche, as described in the Greek myth, is very asleep, and only eros, the divine power of God, harnessed through the signs of breath and divine sexual energy, has the potential to awaken us spiritually. This is known in the traditions of alchemy and tantra in the East. We can do this mantra, Om Tat Sat, as long as we like, within the position of the Rudman. In the beginning, we can practice for 15 minutes, resting our arms down when we need to, then continuing with the prayer, Continuing with the prayer with the position of this room. Since it could be hard in the beginning to hold up our arms for a long period of time. We need to accustom the body through practice as with any yogic discipline. When we pray or rest our arms, 
we should place our hands over our heart with the right hand over the left, as in the style of the Egyptian initiates, since the right hand is solar and the left lunar. The solar forces must conquer the lunar forces of our sensual and intermediate minds, represented by how we place our hands on our heart, tifereth, or will. This exercise, as part of the Nordic runes, comes from the Nordic alphabet, which have an intimate relationship with the Hebrew alphabet. This is well discussed in the runes course on the Nasa Teachings website. Moria taught the Nordic runes to his disciples, and these exercises are alluded to in his book, The Dayspring of Youth, specifically in how we invoke Christic transformation and aspiration atoms in order to develop solar faith. Through this invocation to Christ, with our eyes closed in prayer, focusing on our breath, we also imagine the solar light is entering our palms and breath in order to strengthen our soul. These practices charge our body, soul, and spirit with Christ, and in turn constitute the martial arts or judo of the spirit. Particularly in relation with faith, the Rudman helps us in the generation of spiritual force, which grants us the capacity to awaken our consciousness and the inner mind. This grants us more peace and the ability to concentrate, helping us as a precursor to meditation. So this relates with faith because it is energy applied to action. To clarify this further, Moore elaborates in the Dayspring of Youth. When Jesus used this word in the sentence, if ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, he meant that one could work miracles if one possessed the atomic energy contained within a mustard seed. But in this world of illusion, this is reversed, and the weak man sits still and believes that all will be applied to him if he has faith. It is not a force that should only be applied to religious belief. It is the power of the innermost working through the densities of our bodies. And the more we respond to it, the greater will be our powers. The physical body is very dense, polluted with negative elements from the psyche. The runic exercises bring in the solar force, elevates our vibration, literally transforming and crystifying the body little by little. Faith, therefore, is the power of the solar logos in the body applied through conscious action. With this, the real man, the real human being, is developed particularly through the rites of sexual magic within the perfect matrimony. We always need to feel inspired in our hearts when we practice. That sincerity is what gives us strength and the capacity to effectively apply these techniques. It's difficult in the beginning to learn how to activate and generate that force. Later, it is a matter of controlling it. With time, we learn how to apply that force in our daily life, in a meditation. And this is where the teachings of mystical death come into play. Once we activate the solar force, we become sensitive. And our psychological elements of anger, pride, and lust will attempt to use that energy in the wrong way. This is why self-restraint is essential 
within all teachings of genuine yoga and how this energy is the foundation for helping us to dominate the mind. Whether or not we were practicing such things like Milarepa in the past, we all have some level of iniquity within, with pride, anger, vanity, etc. Which we need to know how to renounce and to eliminate through practical meditation. If we do not remove these elements, then we will not grow spiritually and will not change. But when someone has comprehension that anger, pride, and vanity cause suffering for oneself and for others, we say, I will not act on anger. This restraint is the beginning of mystical death. The restraint on the mind in order to stop feeding the ego. The less we feed the ego, the more we kill it. It starts to wither and die. But as a consequence, it fights to keep its life. The more we know how to restrain our mind and to kill the ego, the more we awaken the inner mind. This is why the initiates of the past gave different commandments for their disciples to follow, so as to assist in the mystical death of the ego, such as, do not lie, do not kill. While this has a physical application, this really refers to not speak words of anger, to not indulge in pride, to not indulge in lust, psychologically speaking. It has to do with how we control our mind. We need this force. So when this force is activated, we can initiate a new way of seeing, a new way of living. It's necessary to learn how to control the mind. The runes are a form of pranayama, as we mentioned. Prana is Christ. Yama in Buddhism is death. It means to yoke or to control, but it also means death. Prana also means life. Therefore, we have a life and death within this practice, since it is the power of life and death, Shiva Shakti, creator and destroyer. We find prana in the air we breathe, but also in our semen, which is condensed and materialized prana. We therefore seek to awaken the forces of life, but also death, in order to control the mind and eliminate its defects in meditation. Salman Vyar wrote in The Great Rebellion, The angel of death has the key to nature's laboratory in his right hand. We can learn very little from the phenomenon of birth, for from, but from death we can learn everything. The unprofaned temple of pure science is found in the depths of the dark sepulchre. If the seed does not die, the plant is not born. Only with death comes forth what is new. When the ego dies, thy consciousness awakens to see the reality of all of nature's phenomena in and of themselves. So again, noumena, real faith. The transmutation of our energies is birth. But then we also have to learn how to control the mind. So this can produce mystical death. Therefore, this is self-observation, self-restraint of our desires. Control the mind. Do not act or speak in harmful ways. Do not indulge in intoxicants or drugs. These are basic tenets of religion that have a foundation in this practice. Because with the accumulation of solar force, we have great potential not only to do good, but to do harm. 
This is why individuals such as Hitler were so dangerous, because he had so much force, but channeled it through his anger, thus destroying millions of people. That's how powerful this energy is, that if we know how to control, we can become like Jesus, leading millions of people. This relates to the science of good and evil, the tree of knowledge. Another simple practice when we sit to meditate after working with the Rune Man is to observe the mind. Don't think or occupy yourself with a certain image. Simply observe the mind as it is. Be aware of the energies present. See what emerges. You will find that with this energy you will see a lot more. This is a simple exercise, but also very difficult. Because the mind always wants to think about something. This is how the mind distracts us, wanting to abuse this energy in order to think, to think, to think. Or the emotional brain or center wants to indulge in anger, pride, or resentment. So after this practice, just sit and observe. So we can become more familiar with our internal worlds. It will give us more solidarity in our practice. That is the beginning of mystical death, having restraint of the mind. Then, when we learn to perceive in the moment, we develop genuine faith, because we see what in us is negative and what in us is positive. It is the awakening of the inner mind that provides us with the perception of the ego, so we can separate ourselves from it, comprehend it, and eradicate those defects. It is through death that the inner mind awakens. The more egos we eliminate, the more consciousness and aspects of the inner mind develop. So it begins with saving our energies and transmuting. To not justify or repress defects in self-observation, but to comprehend them. We must not constantly swing between these extremes, which is known by the law of the pendulum, but to be equilibrated. To conclude, we say that humility is the gateway to genuine faith. When we humble ourselves, such as through the Rune Man, we invite the solar logos into our home, meaning our body, in order to elevate our level of being. When we make this our foundation, we initiate a new way of being, as exemplified by the magician of the Tarot. From the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 4. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And lastly, the following is from The Voice of the Silence by Blavatsky. Be humble, if thou wouldst attain to wisdom. Be humbler still, when wisdom thou hast mastered. Do you have questions? Yeah, you brought up a good point there about humility and about temptation. Pride can be insidious, but by developing humility, that can offset that. It's easy, the temptation to almost be an elitist. It's latent, I think, and it's dangerous. And you brought that out when saying humility is important. As you discover these things, you might feel, I'm one of the elect. Or I could sneak in like a serpent, but to be aware of it is good. I'll tell you a story that happened to me many years ago. 
when I first started this type of teaching. I awoke in the astral plane and I asked my being to take me to Egypt. So I found myself, through his power, going through the earth and came out flying over the city of Cairo. It was very dark and obscure, nearly impossible to see anything. I flew over to the pyramids of Giza, where exists a great temple of the White Lodge, a very ancient place that has a lot of power. Since the angels and masters of Egypt are working there very intensely to help humanity. Mozart, the great composer, received an initiation in that temple. So I wanted to gain access to the grounds there. When I approached the gate, the entrance, a guardian stopped me. I couldn't see him, but I felt that he had a dagger pointed at my throat. And I was stunned when he said, with great severity, many are called, few are chosen. I then returned to my body like that. This experience haunts me still today because the dagger symbolizes treason. And the fact that it was pointed at the throat is highly significant. If we transpose the tree of life upon the human body, the throat represents da'at, which in Hebrew means knowledge or gnosis. It refers to the sexual teaching, the knowledge of using the creative energies in the right way. This was a humbling experience because even if one has a lot of experiences or is a missionary and instructor practicing for many years, there is no guarantee that one is saved. One is only saved after the complete annihilation of the ego. This Egyptian initiate did me a great service by humbling me because I felt proud to be able to travel out of my body and visit temples of the White Lodge. He really put me in my place for be humble to attain enlightenment but after attaining it through having Numerous samadhis and mystical exaltations be humbler still. This initiate told me this fact that many are called, few are chosen. Just because I am called here to teach this science does not guarantee I will succeed. What matters is mystical death. The Egyptian guardian sent me back to my body because I was not worthy to enter this temple. The experience it gave me indicates that by remaining faithful to the science of sexual energy and meditation, we do not betray the Lord. When we use our energies through vocalizations, we produce transmutation. 
Therefore, we must never cease in transmutation and to never fornicate. Otherwise, we will not be one of the few. To have a dagger at one's throat, as in my experience, tells us, be careful with how you use this energy. If we use it in the wrong way, it will slay us. But if we know how to use it well, it becomes our sword for battle. If we know how to restrain our minds, we can enter the temples. But if we are like donkeys, kicking, flailing, and not obeying the good law, when we do not know how to submit to God, we will not be admitted. Even if this might be a disturbing story, it was tremendously helpful. An honor to be instructed in such a way. It continues to push me to practice very hard. So work with the Rune Man. It is very powerful. More questions or comments? When you say conjure, what does that mean? Does it mean to evoke, to call in some entity? We have available the Gnostic prayer book, which contains prayers from most of the major traditions. It says here to conjure comes from the Latin cum jurare, meaning to swear together. It means to invoke a superior force in order to be in communion with it. This indicates that we are asking a being to resonate with the Christ force. So in the prayer to the solar logos, we say, I conjure thee. We invoke the Lord, so we are in harmony with him. When we conjure, we bring down, we invoke the Christ. And when you're trying to distance yourself from a negative force, you can use conjurations for that purpose? Yes. The conjurations have that purpose. When we conjure a being, we are commanding. Swear with me that you are with Christ. If they are not with Christ, they will show us through their actions that they do not swear on it. Then you will know you are with a demon. This relates with internal experiences to awaken within dream yoga. Prayers to invoke Christ have the power to protect us. When we assimilate the Christ force, we have the struggle with the mind, but also with outside negative forces that seek to deter us. However, this is nothing to be afraid of. It is very common for the one who matures and has experience, so they learn how to deal with those types of forces. The way that we learn to manage the negative energies of other beings is by controlling our own mind. We are having access to this knowledge now. It certainly gives us pause for thought, really, not only to reflect on, but to get into certain practices. You pass cemeteries and there's millions of people there. Some of them went along with conventional religion. We students are a minority here, I believe. We're trying to open our minds up. Where do these souls end up if they didn't even know about this path? They were incarnated on this planet and all you see are their headstones this is the reality. They were human beings once, and all there is left are their decaying organic remains in the ground. 
Where is the reservoir of souls? What's their destiny? They didn't even have access to thinking like this. They maybe went once a week to church on Sundays, and the most edifying thing they were thinking about was, what are we going to have for supper tonight? You know what I'm saying? These are very profound subjects. The truth is, many decades ago, or better said, many centuries ago, people did not have access to this knowledge. Yet they have returned in order to be given the chance to change. Right now, this teaching is, and this knowledge is being given openly. Those who are given the chance, but don't take it, they descend. They go towards what is called the second death. Do those souls who never knew about this knowledge get punished? It would seem the vast majority of mankind was never exposed to this science. The truth is, now this knowledge is being given openly. Anybody can get it. But people have to want it. They have to search. Those who have no longings, who don't search, are what we call empty houses. They're dead already. Which is why Christ said, let the dead bury their dead. But there were a lot of people who would have. They just had no knowledge. They didn't have negative intent. They were incarnated. Those people who are sincere and want to change, and who have the capacity to change, they are given the opportunity. But they have to work to get it. It's learning to swim against the tide. And those who show that they want to change, even if they have no books or no knowledge, they will find the teachings. They will find them. All of us have been like that. Christ said, out of a thousand who seek me, one finds me. Out of a thousand who find me, one follows me. Out of a thousand who follow me, one is mine. And out of a thousand who are mine, one knows me perfectly. Those who search, many times they get lost because they're not strong enough. Those who are strong, who reject the orthodox teachings, they find the secret path eventually because God is pushing so hard even if the person breaks. Personally, that is what I experienced. The breaking point where real humility and acceptance is born so as to find this knowledge. Many run away from death, ignoring that death is the path to life. Those who are really searching for the knowledge really want to die in their defects. And when a person really wants to change fundamentally in that way, the angels look down and say, Look, help him or her. They give you everything you need. And in accordance with karma, sometimes those people have to suffer a lot in order to receive this wisdom. Since after that suffering and by finding the teaching, one experiences great joy. I can finally appreciate the value of it. There are many who come and find this teaching out of curiosity and thereafter leave, developing nothing spiritually. Those who suffer the most comprehend this knowledge in depth and thereafter they develop more faith. 
for in much knowledge is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I believe that's from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 18. It's not that people were never given the chance. Everyone is given the opportunity, but there's work involved. In the past, it was way more difficult to find this knowledge because the great colleges of initiation were kept private. But times have changed. What was very difficult to find decades ago is now openly available. People are searching and able to find this science easily. The search was hard in the past for disciples like Gurdjieff, who eventually entered into an initiatic order and attained mastery. This shows that those who really wanted the knowledge found it, but they had to weep tears of blood to really get it. The truth is that now this knowledge is given openly. Most people don't take it. Those who want Gnosis will find it. God ensures that the sincere devotee will find it. Whether the soul takes it is up to the individual will. But those who genuinely want it have suffered a lot and developed very strong faith like Milarepa since he realized how much harm he caused and feels true repentance. This is generally what it takes to really enter the path. In the past, there was the excuse that one couldn't find the knowledge. It was extremely hard to find schools of initiation. In these times, there's no excuse. Everything is given openly and for almost for free. The books are not for profit and the proceeds go towards future publications and to maintain our websites. There's no monetary gain here. It's solely for the dissemination of the teachings of Samael and Vior. Whoever does not want Gnosis, it's their choice. But there is no excuse now. This is why it was stated in Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. How we use our sexual energy determines whether we will walk the way of life or the way of death. Again, relating to prana, life, and yama, death. Those who found the knowledge, now it's just a matter of study and practice, applying and experimenting with the different exercises. It is hard to learn how to practice effectively, but we learn little by little, generating true faith, joy, and happiness, inspiring us to continue working. Since with faith the size of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. We can take this a step further through Nietzsche's postulation. And the lover of knowledge, Gnosis, shall learn to build with mountains. It means little that the spirit moves mountains. Did you know that? From Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I'm a famous wise man. This means to build with spirit through initiation. Master Samael mentioned that each soul revolves through this wheel of samsara 3,000 times in one of his books. 
This is in relation to your comment about individual souls that are searching, but simply because of their own will, do not find the path. They're drawn away by their own egotism or outside influences. As souls suffer tremendously going through this wheel of samsara, do they build dharma even if they do not enter the direct path? There's knowledge gained, but it is minor in comparison to the direct path. There are different paths in the development of the soul. Many simply incarnate, suffer in life, and die, going to the abyss to be disintegrated, and returning once again through progressive incarnations, through mineral, plant, and animal consciousness, until becoming humanoid again. That is one rotation of the wheel of samsara. Those souls that definitively do not want realization proceed on such a path until finally, after the 3,000th turn, are reabsorbed back into the Absolute. There is knowledge gained, but nothing in comparison to an initiate of the straight path who consciously works towards realization. You can read more about this in The Mystery of the Golden Flower by Samayang Vyora. What is the role of purgatory in esotericism? Purgatory is a place of suffering, like hell, but for the conscious purification of sins. It refers to processes of initiation and is not simply a place of condemnation or as misrepresented in many religions. It refers to a process of paying penance, purifying the mind while ascending to God. In hell, it's the opposite. One distances from God and suffers terribly without gaining spiritual development. Purgatory is an ascension towards God, where the initiate works to unite with God by paying the karma of their past actions through mystical death. This is the second mountain mentioned by Samael and Veor in the Three Mountains, entitled the Mountain of Resurrection or Mystical Death. To conclude, what we need most is practice, to develop real faith. Without practice, all this is just conjecture. What's the point? It applies once we know how to awaken our neuma, our numina, within and through spiritual experience. These are interesting things to know, but don't let it just sit in your intellect. For with faith the size of a mustard seed, we can move or climb mountains. This has to do with how we use our seminal seed in order to change psychologically. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. We thank you for listening. 
We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.